Hello and welcome to the Building Local Power podcast. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I'm joined virtually today by the Institute's co-directors, John Farrell and Stacy Mitchell, as well as uh, Chris Mitchell, who also works here. Couldn't keep me out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, we are very scattered today, so uh, where are you guys at? St. Paul. In my basement in Minneapolis. I'm in my tiny two-room office in Portland, Maine. Wait a second, Jess. Where are you recording from? (laughs) Uh, uh, As usual, my tiny bedroom closet in St. Paul, Minnesota. Lovely uh, jacket on the door there. It gets warm with all the clothes. (laughs) Okay, so today we're going to have a conversation about uh, the state of small businesses in our country and the federal government's response to support businesses during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Stacy, can you talk a little bit about the rollout of the federal funding for small businesses um, and some of the issues that came up? Yeah, uh, as many people probably know, Congress, as part of the big relief bill, authorized about $350 billion in forgivable loans to be made to small businesses through the Small Business Administration's network of banks. The good news was that this was forgivable loans. So businesses that spend that money on payroll and rent and mortgage can get all of that part of the loan forgiven, which is what we were calling for. The bad news is that they decided to run this through this network of banks. They didn't provide anywhere near enough money, and the SBA network of banks is far too rickety to actually get money out quickly and easily. And so we have seen all kinds of reports of you know craziness at the banks, problems, businesses waiting in line, crashing websites, and on and on and on. And meanwhile, of course, their livelihood, the business that they've spent their life building, is hanging in the balance. Now, that's a small business administration, SBA. Um, Stacy. I'm, I'm curious if you can just tell folks a little bit about the prep work you did and then the front row seat you had, just so people have a sense of how to ground your comments. As governments were you know, shutting things down in March, you know, and it was becoming clear that businesses across the country were going to see their revenue just completely flatline, like never happened before. This is not like a recession. It's something entirely different. And as that was becoming apparent, we moved really quickly to assemble a network of about 15 small business organizations at the national and local level that we've worked with before. And we're able to provide some real leadership in bringing those groups together around uh, uh, five uh, policy principles. In particular, we called for uh, grants, not loans, that businesses needed to be able to bridge this crisis and that if they were overloaded with debt, that was going to kill them later. And we also called for the programs that Congress passed not to further exacerbate concentration of monopoly power. Like basically, you shouldn't give big businesses a ton of money and, and screw small businesses. And so we then worked with a variety of partner organizations, AFL-CIO, Americans for Financial Reform, Center for Popular Democracy, uh, and in particular, the Main Street Alliance to uh, advocate with lawmakers for our proposals. And what we had said was that this money really needs to be much larger. Uh, My calculation was that we needed something like one and a half trillion dollars just to cover businesses in the most affected sectors and just to cover businesses with fewer than 100 employees. 
the existing program is up to 500 employees and has a bunch of loopholes. And so putting $350 billion down initially, and now they've added another $300 billion, you know, we're still not in the ballpark of the scale of what's needed. And then the other piece of our proposal that's different from what Congress passed is that we said that this cash needs to go out directly from Treasury. You know, the IRS collects taxes from all the businesses in the country, and they can push things out through those that same way in order to reach all of the businesses. And the advantage of that is it would have been quick, it would have been assured, we would have made sure that all businesses had access as opposed to the very patchwork, messy situation where a lot of businesses, especially very small businesses and minority-owned businesses, are, are being sidelined. Is it worth asking you a question, Stacy, about why that happened? I don't know if it's worth getting into because there's so much more meat here to talk about. About why Congress went with the SBA program? Right. You know, it's hard to say. There was a proposal to do something closer to what we had called for by three Democratic senators, but they didn't actually draft legislation. And I honestly, I don't have a clear view on how hard they pushed for that. You know, the Senate, of course, is Republican controlled. And uh, Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, told Marco Rubio, who chairs the Small Business Committee, you figure this out and come up with a plan. And Rubio apparently sat in a room for 12-hour days and interacted with different senators, and they, they wrote this policy. I think one reason that they ended up going with the SBA versus Treasury is that the Small Business Committee actually has jurisdiction over the SBA. They don't have jurisdiction over the Treasury. So in a weird way, it may have been a kind of odd jurisdictional issue. Um, but you know, at this point, we still believe that a program through Treasury is necessary. I mean, it's sort of like you know, your stove was on fire and you didn't grab the fire extinguisher uh, right away when you should have, and now your whole kitchen's on fire, but you still need to grab the fire extinguisher. And so, you know, we pretty much think that still needs to happen. Uh, we keep the PPP program going and we fund it, but we also need this bigger injection of cash. One of my total healthy obsessions is how people will often think something was an accident or was unintended, and nobody could have foreseen that these mass massive franchises would come out ahead of small businesses with this program. But I get the impression, Stacey, that, that someone did foresee this problem before the bill was signed. You mean the problem known as the Shake Shack problem, Chris? Right, the Shake Shack problem, which is not the shake weight problem. That's opposite ends. Yeah, I prefer to think of it as the Ruth Chris problem. I mean, I don't know. You're a big fan of steakhouses. Yeah, big, I'm, I'm the vegetarian who likes the steakhouses. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we were, you know, through the weekend that Congress was passing the CARES Act, we were uh, looking at and pro providing feedback on drafts of the bill as it was as they were being worked through uh, Congress. So we were seeing one draft after another and able to comment on the small business provisions. And then we got the draft, the finalized draft of what they passed. And lo and behold, there is a new provision in there that wasn't in there before. And I caught it and others did, I imagine, as well. That it said that you know businesses in this particular industry classification uh, can apply if they have no more than 500 employees at a location, and the, the classification was for restaurants and hotels. So you could have a chain like uh, Shake Shack, and if your individual locations are under 500 employees, each of those locations can apply. And you know that was shoved in there at the last minute by the um, you know the hotel and restaurant lobby association, and you know clearly they have a kind of access and an ability to write legislation in such a way that other people have no ability to fight back. Um, I'm curious about the role that community lenders and local banks played in the distribution of that money compared to the big banks. 
Yeah, so community banks, uh, you know, which are like small, locally headquartered banks, they're a small share of our overall banking system. You know, depending on how you measure, they're maybe as much as 20%, but really no more than that. So they're a small share of the sector, but they provide a really disproportionate uh, share of small business lending in, in normal times. They sprung into action, many of them, very early uh, around this crisis. Many began to collect information from their borrowers. Many went out proactively to businesses in their communities and said, we know something's going to be coming through Congress. Let's go ahead and get your documents in order uh, and that kind of thing. And so they were able to process uh, a disproportionate share of these loans, like they outperformed their size in a big way. Meanwhile, the big banks hemmed and hawed, you know, Bank of America said, oh, we're not going to lend to you unless you're already borrowing from us. Uh, Citigroup couldn't even get up its its application process until the, the program was almost closed. You know, I mean, what we learned is what ILSR has been saying for a long time that's now been very vividly demonstrated is that the problem with big banks is not just that they're too big to fail and they create all this risk, it's that they're too big to actually succeed at what we need banks to do. You know, They cannot actually make these loans in an effective uh, way. They're not good at doing small business lending and so they fell down on the task in a big way. So I think what we're going to see, and, and, and ILSR is, is producing some analysis around this, is that States that have a large number of community banks were able to get far more of these loans out to businesses during the first few weeks of this program than states that don't have very many community banks. Stacey, I feel like you have to deal with something that I'm frequently railing on, which is elected officials that will talk about how important something is over and over again while their actions totally belie that. You know, in broadband, it's elected officials saying, this is the most important thing for our future, the kids, everyone has a job, everyone needs this. And no, I'm not really going to do much about it. That's Comcast's job. I can't tell you the last time I heard an elected official that wasn't gushing over small business. How is it that they just get left out um, of these of these consequences? I mean, are these elected officials actually lying do they just not know what they're doing? Like, how does this happen? It is incredibly true. Uh, you know, small business is in the rhetoric like apple pie. I mean, it is right up there. Uh, all politicians across the spectrum talk about small businesses and how great they are. And then their actions completely go in the opposite way. And that's been true for decades now. And we have documented all kinds of ways in which that's the case. It's hard for me to, to know uh, how to explain the behavior. I mean, I think on the part of Democrats, frankly, I, I think that they don't fully understand small business. They don't understand the scale of small business. They don't understand how pivotal they are in the economy and within their industries. I think there's a way in which Democrats think of small business as kind of a mm, sort of warm and fuzzy, nice to have, but not actually central to how innovation happens, employment, the well-being of communities. I mean, they don't really understand. Um, and, you know, I think Republicans maybe have a better grasp of some of those things, but ultimately, as a party, have been very wedded to the fortunes of big business. And so, um, you know, they do, they do the interests of big business, and that often means they're doing things that are oppositional to what small businesses need. Stacey, you testified in front of uh, Congress, um, what was it, two months ago now, something like that, about the power of these big companies. At the time, I actually th thought it was like a given that everyone knew and expected that Amazon was just using data about how others on the platform sold things and they were using that to their advantage. And I guess apparently Amazon said they weren't doing that. And now we found out they were. So 
I'm sort of amazed that it's this thing that you documented multiple times. You told Congress and they said, no, we don't do that. But now they've admitted that they are doing it. That's right. Last July, actually, I I testified uh, before the House Judiciary Committee as part of their antitrust investigation into big tech. And before my panel testified, there was a panel of executives from the tech companies, including a guy named Nate Sutton, who represented Amazon. And during his testimony, he was asked pointedly by um, Representative Jayapal, who is from Seattle, uh, about whether or not Amazon gathers up all this data, essentially spies on the companies that are selling on its platform, and then uses that data to create competing products that compete directly against those companies. And Mr. Sutton insisted that that was not the case. He said, no, no, we don't do that. And the chairman of the committee interrupted him and said, let me remind you that you're under oath. Because when Sutton said this, I mean, there was an audible reaction in the room from people who follow Amazon of like, what are you talking about? That's obviously not the case. And so then Sutton restated his answer in a very particular way and said, well, we don't use data on individual sellers. We use aggregate data. So across a bunch of sellers in a product category, we might be looking at that data. We don't drill down and spy on one individual company. So fast forward to today, and the Wall Street Journal has really been earning its keep. They have a blockbuster story just posted this afternoon in which they uh, have interviews with over 20 former Amazon employees who said, oh yeah, we used individual seller data all the time. Like theoretically, Amazon had a fence, but they didn't enforce the fence. There were all kinds of ways around it. And so, for example, they would get all of this detailed cost and sales data on a product that was made by a small uh, company. It was a, a thing you put in your in your car trunk to organize stuff. And Amazon made one that looked just like it and uh, based on using that data. And it was one of many examples in the article. But that is monopoly behavior, hence the desire to try to cover it up, uh, hence the lying. And so now we have Amazon lying to Congress. We have perjury. Uh, we have monopoly behavior. Uh, and we have a very deep need <laughs> to have Jeff Bezos called before the House Judiciary Committee to testify under oath about his company. I want to add to just one little piece of color from your tweet thread about this, Stacey, that I think really illustrates the the lengths to which Amazon will go to pretend they are complying with the law, but to not, but that it could be aggregating data from as few as two sellers. So all you need to have is one dummy seller on the platform that sells nothing that you combine with literally any other seller. And you now have two sellers in some category on which you can aggregate data but really just get the data on the one that you want to steal the information from. And so the fact that they are doing this in such a pathetically non-transparent way is just really striking. That's right. You know, I mean, they, they say they have this fence, but the fence, as you note, is ridiculous because, you know, aggregated data can just be two sellers. Obviously, that doesn't mask anything, especially when one of the sellers sells next to nothing of the product. Um, and they have a number of specific examples in the article where companies are like, yeah, that's my exact sales numbers. This supposedly aggregated data is my exact sales numbers. And the other thing that's really sort of striking about it is that, you know, Amazon is is basically in their statement to the Wall Street Journal, they're looking for a fall guy. That's what I mean. They've said, oh, no, we have a fence. We're, we're now, uh, you know, nobody's allowed to do this. We're undertaking an internal investigation 
and so on and so forth. And it's like, yeah, they're going to, you know, some employee is going to get fired. You know, I've studied a lot of big companies. I've never studied one that is as tightly controlled internally as Amazon. There's no way that this was happening if it wasn't the company's intentions that it would happen. I'm just going to jump in real quick and say thanks to everyone for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. If you're enjoying this conversation, or if you're maybe feeling a little guilty about something you bought on Amazon recently, we hope you'll consider donating to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. By doing so, you support this podcast as well as the many other resources that we make available on our website. To make a contribution, you can head on over to ilsr.org slash donate. That's ilsr.org slash donate. Thank you. Is there any chance we're going to see a tweet from the president saying, hey, Jeff, I hear you got a fence problem? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he has actually been calling for Bezos to testify about counterfeits. So, uh, yeah, we'll see if he decides to chime in on this. Uh, Somehow, I don't think he's a Wall Street Journal reader, so maybe he'll miss the news. My head's been spinning a little bit. I mean, every time I feel like I hear Stacey talk about this, I I feel like I have not appreciably grasped the danger that is facing small businesses right now. I feel like most people, myself included, have this sense it's going to be hard. We're eventually going to come out of lockdown. Businesses will have struggled, but fundamentally, most of them will still be there. In part, I feel that way because I can't imagine an alternative. And I'm just, you know, trying not to like get emotional in some ways, but like, do you have any sense of, of what the world could look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I have had a, a very strong sense from where I sit of the incredible peril that businesses, small businesses are facing. I have had a really hard time with it. Uh, you know, just, you know, the sort of sense of, of like impending doom and grief and just want and and working really hard these last few weeks to try to avert it and not wanting to imagine frankly what is the most likely scenario right now uh, absent policy intervention i guess because i really feel like we have to keep pushing congress uh, to do something about this but yeah so i mean so there's some survey data from uh, the main street america and their surveys are of like sort of storefront businesses. So restaurants, retailers, you know, hair salons, all the customer service businesses that line your streets in your neighborhood or in your town. And this is data that they gathered at the end of March. So we're now almost a month away. And they found that one third of those businesses said that they would uh, likely close in one to two months. And another third said that they would close in three to five months. So in five months we could have two-thirds of all independent businesses gone and find you know when we re-emerge in our cities that though we have it's just complete emptiness that things like the independent bookstore sector has collapsed i mean some of the biggest bookstores in the country like powell's books in portland oregon which employs or used to employ 300 people is a bedrock of you know highly competitive online and and physical world, you know they are in trouble. Um, so even the biggest, most robust ones are in serious trouble. And if they collapse, if the wholesalers that supply them go under, I mean we could see it's like a, it's like an ecological event, like like the bleaching of coral. 
you know, you could have a real domino effect. And I'm I'm so heartbroken about it that I have a hard time, you know, even really talking about it in those terms. But it is an extinction level event, potentially. This kind of brings me to uh, the other part of this conversation that I wanted to get to, which will eventually get to like the recovery process and what that might look like. But I'm curious in the more immediate future, as we're talking about, in quotes, opening the economy again, do you have any sense on how we can do that in a way that is safe and will help those small businesses versus, you know, making some policy decision right now, snapping our fingers and saying, everybody go back outside, go out to eat, that would actually hurt them. You know, people aren't actually going to go back to restaurants right now. Um, they're not going to go to the bookstores. I'm just curious if, if you have thoughts on that. You know, I think the, the, the reason that the idea of simply having the government step in and say, we are going to pick up your payroll, your core costs, your occupancy costs for the foreseeable future is really important because it's basically freezing expenses for small businesses. They'll have other expenses. They will have to take out some level of loans. But basically, we can say, we're going to, we're going to keep your location, you, yourself as a business owner, your employees intact through what is now an uncertain and long period of time in which we may be completely shut down, we may go off and on being shut down, you know, there are various things being being talked about. That sort of a policy makes a lot of sense. In terms of like how the reopening could occur, I mean, there are things right now that are important. You know, my town, my city here had actually told uh, businesses that they couldn't be in their stores at all. So they couldn't even do curbside or uh, shipping from their businesses because they couldn't, they weren't even allowed as staff to go in. They've now rescinded that policy as of just a few days ago. And so, you know, independent retailers here are back to being able to do curbside pickup and, and shipping of goods, which is helpful. Um, so I think we need to do that as an initial phase. And, you know, there needs to be distancing inside among employees and a real minimizing of employees and masks and sanitation and all those other things, I think is important. But I feel like that's something that we can handle with a fairly minimal amount of risk. And we're certainly doing it with grocery stores and the like. Uh, that's a first phase of reopening when we feel like that's the appropriate phase to, to be in. I think the, the next phase is that Retail stores are allowed to reopen, but they have a limited number of customers that can be inside at any given time, and also some additional measures around employee protections uh, and, and the like. I mean, there's a big difference between crowding into a bar, uh, which I think is a real contagion problem, and someone browsing in a bookstore when there's like two people in the bookstore. Ms. Stacey, can I ask you about that? Because it strikes me that that's not actually a recovery for a restaurant, for instance, in which if they lose half their customers in their space, that's not enough to make their numbers probably. And so that would then require some level of ongoing assistance or just uh, putting those places out of business, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking, I've been mostly talking and thinking about retail stores in the last, you know, in these comments. I think with restaurants, I feel like I don't have a clear sense. It raises more significant public health issues because, you know, even if you space them apart, you still have people sitting whatever distance from other people for extended periods of time. They obviously won't be wearing masks while they're doing it. They'll be talking and eating. And so it seems to me that that does raise some real questions. And I'm not clear if we have good public health information about what that risk level is and if there's a way to actually mitigate it or not. Um, in the interim, you know, one of the things that some cities have done is that they have allowed restaurants to do not only curbside pickup of food, but also curbside pickup of liquor. 
And as you know, restaurants make a lot of, you know, a lot of their money from alcohol sales. And so that's one of the things that's really hurt. And so being able to sell a bottle of wine with a meal is really important. And that's a simple uh, policy change that cities can make right now. So in the meantime, Stacy, small businesses looking for help or people looking to see how they can support their favorite local businesses, what resources is your team working on? What do we have available on our website for folks to check out? Yeah, we have a bunch of things. So if you go to ILSR and then click on the independent business initiative, you'll find everything there. We even have a special COVID page. We have an infographic that you can share and put up as a poster uh, about how to help small your local businesses weather the COVID crisis. We also have a, a more detailed article about that. We have resources for uh, business owners themselves in terms of steps they can take to pivot to online and phone orders. We have, I think, what is the largest uh, collection of state and local and nonprofit grant and loan programs available to small businesses. We've got over 180 programs listed, organized by location. And we have uh, an article that overviews what uh, provides an overview of what the most important things that local and state governments can do. And of course, you can also find all of our advocacy resources around what Congress needs to do. Thanks. If you're going to head off, thanks uh, for being here. And then I'll turn it over to Chris and John. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Chris and John. Nice to see you all. Okay. So as we look to uh, more long-term recovery strategies, uh, I'd like to hear from both of you guys your thoughts on what that might look like for the world of renewable energy um, or broadband access. You know, Jess, I think what it's really interesting about the energy sector right now is is the primary need and the urgent need, just like there is for small businesses, is to help individuals at home from having their utilities shut off. And this actually really bridges both the work that Chris and I do around energy and broadband, that it's all of these utilities are important at this time. It's not just heat for your home, electricity to run the devices that your kids might need to do schoolwork or that you might need to work from home, but also the internet access that you need. And so there's been some really unfortunate and stunning revelations about utilities cutting off people's heat and power during this crisis, which is, you know, the normal business operation. And frankly, one that I think we should all question whether or not it's reasonable to cut off these essential services. So there's a real there's a real reckoning happening uh, on that front. But there's also a unique opportunity, I think, too, as we as we look forward coming out of this crisis how do we find things to invest in that will support the economy? And one of the ideas that we're floating is how do we make a massive investment in rooftop solar? And it seems a little bit silly to talk about solar at a time like this when you know that people are struggling, for example, for protective equipment for first responders and for medical employees or many other issues. Uh, But one of the upsides of solar is that it not only creates a lot of jobs, it's labor intensive, but it does so in a very localized fashion. And then it pays back in a way that few other investments do because every solar panel that's put up produces electricity for 20 or 25 or 30 or more years. And so it's a really interesting opportunity to make an investment that is good for the climate. I mean, you see all sorts of pictures floating around social media, like the skylines of towns six months ago compared to now, the clean skies. We can get there. A lot of those emissions are the result of cars. If we powered cars with electricity and got that electricity from solar panels, that actually is how our atmosphere could look all the time. But also, this is a, a great opportunity to, to help people where they're feeling the pain in terms of financial crisis by reducing their energy bills. So if we And we can focus specifically on those hurting the most, like low-income folks and small businesses. And if I could just amplify that for a second, I mean, it seems to me that we are going to be powering our cars with electricity from roofs. The question is just when, and the longer we delay it, the longer it'll take us to get the benefits from it. Um, John, I feel like this is where the 
part of your work that I just love the most is trying to get people to understand that one of the biggest regulatory games that's being played right now is by monopoly utilities who are trying to figure out how to, A, build the last couple of gas factories and things like that, but also B, own everything moving forward so that they get the benefits of this technological shift rather than us. I, I should add, actually, Chris, speaking of that happening, there's actually a really concerted effort right now by what's called a dark money group, a nonprofit organization whose funding sources are hidden from the public, that has put a petition in front of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that would essentially destroy the rooftop solar market by making it illegal or making it financially unfeasible to do rooftop solar in every single state. Uh, and it is no coincidence that they've timed this for a period in which we are focused on an intense crisis across our entire country. But this dark money group has a history of trying to fight ways that individuals can exercise their own solar rights, can get power from their own rooftop and get a fair price for it. And so unfortunately, we have to be very vigilant not only to defend the ground that we have, but to make the right investments so that in the future we have this opportunity for some harmony between the way that we produce our energy, the way we use our energy and the environmental impact that it has. And I think we can do that in a way right now where we not only fend off these ridiculous attempts to kill the industry, but also invest some of our recovery money in a way that can have a very real impact for the individuals, the households and the businesses that are suffering the most. I mean, that was kind of like a mic drop moment from John Farrell there. Chris, I'm curious uh, to hear your perspective on how this might change how we think about broadband infrastructure. Pick up that microphone, Mr. Mitchell. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I keep hearing people saying we can't forget when this is over that we have to resolve broadband. <laughs> and my immediate reaction is if we are going to wait until this is over to resolve this issue, then we are going to forget it. <laughs> this is something that uh, we do have to deal with. I mean, I think we're talking about an investment to solve this problem on the order of tens of billions of dollars to perhaps 150 billion if your goal is to, for instance, bring competition to everyone and a high quality connection and multiple providers to everyone. That's sort of the high end. In the short term, you know, I, I feel like we need more Wi-Fi hotspots and parking lots to make sure that for people who have to leave their homes to get service, that they can do it in a safe place that is convenient to them. Uh, that's probably the best we can do in the near future as we're certainly at the end of this school year, the beginning of next school year. People are learning a lot about medical supply chains, but for building fiber optic networks in northern climates, for anyone who's thinking, you know what we need? We need to actually really get on this plan. You're not going to get that in the ground before October. You're going to be breaking ground in the spring next year. These are things that take a while to build. So there's a, a bit of a reality there, but uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it. We have to we have to focus on these short-term efforts to make sure that people have decent connections in their homes. Uh, part of that actually means making sure people are aware of the offers from big monopoly companies that we may not necessarily want to do business with, but nonetheless, they already have connections to people's homes. And if they can offer them at no charge or a free or at a very low cost, then uh, we need to encourage people to sign up for those. Uh, but in terms of the longer term solution, you, you, should, you shouldn't trust anyone who says that as a result of this totally different, surprising turn of events, everything I've ever said is true. But I do feel like we have to keep our eyes on the prize and we need to focus on locally rooted solutions for broadband. And hopefully people will take this more seriously now. One argument I hope never to hear again is that it's okay for kids to get their Wi-Fi access at McDonald's. People should have high quality access in their homes. And I feel like people have a greater appreciation for that now. Thank you. Is there anything else that you guys want to talk about today? 
There's a way to end up with anything fun that we've read lately or anything? Yes, I've read the guidelines on how to properly wear a mask to protect myself, Chris. As Jess knows, <laughs> Jess is probably half crazy by um, my rantings about different masks and, and what we know and what we don't know about that sort of a thing. But um, I do wear a mask when I go out to protect others, and I hope other people are, are doing that. I think it's uncomfortable. I have to take my glasses off. Frankly, I I'm, don't much care for it, but it's perhaps a mark of living in civilization now that we will care for each other in this way. Okay, on that note, thank you guys. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, you can help us out with the gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Zach Fried, Shushmita Shrestha, and me, Jess Delfiaco. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Wait, wait.